Amen. Amen. Stubborn faith and stubborn hope. It's kind of a sanctified hard-headedness, isn't it? No. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. And our prayer this morning is that you would bind our hearts to your heart, Lord, by the power of your spirit, bind our hearts to your heart that we may hear what you want us to hear, that we may understand what you want us to understand, and that you will be pleased with us as we leave this time together with our Bibles open, with our hearts open, with your spirit working among us. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you have one of these? How many of you have one of these? I don't mean at home. I mean, you know, we're within reach this morning. I want you to find your way to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And here's our theme for this morning. Hope in the storm. Hope in the storm, a little more specific statement of the topic as it relates to this season in King David's life, you could put it something like this, hope in the fury of a family storm, hope in the fury of a family storm. The key here is hope shows up before the storm ends. We don't need hope necessarily after the storm is over. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 15, 13. It is a demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God at work in your life. When even when it looks like everything's coming loose, even when it looks like there are folks that you wish would like you don't like you at that moment in time, even when it may be in the middle of something that that you brought on yourself, how many of us in this room could say, I am capable of sometimes doing some stupid things? I'm capable of getting my, I don't need the devil to mess me. I I have enough power with my my own way of thinking and talking and being that I can get myself in a big mess. David's circumstances at this season in his life, he had nobody to blame for them but himself. Last week we We camped out on that season in David's life, the dark night of the soul as we've talked about it, that for whatever reason, he wasn't out fighting, wasn't out with his armies. He he was at home. The armies went out without him. Was Was he just tired of fights? Was he just weary of war? Michael, his, his first wife, whom he evidently loved, and he had five or six other wives at that time, but it seemed that he preferred her, and he 
fought to win her back when Saul had taken him, taken her from him, and she rejected him. She, she began to make fun of him, mocking him on the occasion of his celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant to, or the bringing of it in. It hadn't been there before. It was his first time to come into the city of David there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be the broader geographic area. And she saw him just dancing wildly before the Lord, stripped down to the waist, and, and it just disgusted her. And so she belittled him, mocked him, and from that point on, there was just a severe dif- distance in their relationship. Was he, was he saddened? Was he, was he frustrated? Was he disappointed that for some reason or other, the, the wife of his youth, was uh, saying he didn't have what it takes to be a king, to be a man. That coupled with just being weary of war. What, whatever the circumstances were, David ends up on his palace, top of the roof of his palace, after dark, should have been in his own bed, lights out, but he's up walking around and Bathsheba, the beautiful young wife of Uriah, one of his key men, one of his, one of his battle leaders who was at that point in time out with the army fighting. He sees her as king. He just takes her. She spends the night in the palace. She ends up getting pregnant from that encounter. He tries to cover his tracks by bringing Uriah home from the battlefront to go spend a night with his wife, which he wouldn't do. He stayed in the palace, refused to go home because he felt that his comrades in arms were away from their families as well. And so David's, David's plot was foiled. And the only thing that he could see left to do to cover his tracks with Bathsheba's pregnancy was to have Uriah, her husband, put to death in a battle, put him at the hottest part of the battle, and then the troops withdraw, and he would be killed. He sent that command by way of his, one of his two, one of his commanding generals, and that was what happened. He's a murderer. He's, a bath- he, he is the, he's the one who took another man's wife, and he, it looked as if for all practical purposes for a king, he'd, he'd gotten away with it, except that his conscience, his heart was killing. It's, it's generally regarded that about a year went by from the time that Bathsheba was taken and the time that Nathan the prophet was sent by the Lord to confront David. I want you to find in your copy of the scripture, if you will, one more time, 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Nathan the prophet is speaking for the Lord. Now, the thing, folks, we need to keep in mind is there are no secrets between us and the Lord. Just because we hadn't said anything in that direction doesn't mean he doesn't know about it. He sees, and the New Testament say, 
we are completely naked and open before the one with whom we have to do. There are no secrets with the Lord. So when Nathan comes and he starts calling names and, and going over specific instances that David had done his best to cover up, it's a striking reminder to us that the Lord doesn't miss a trick. The, 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 you know, the bad news about that is you, the way of the transgressor is hard. The good news about that is we're not going to do anything that's going to surprise the Lord. He sees it. He knows it. Why have you despised, verse 9, Nathan speaking for the Lord, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. How did Nathan know that? The Lord told Nathan, gave Nathan the name and gave Nathan the means of death. It came out of heaven. It wasn't collateral communication. He got it from the Lord. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. In the battle, you used the swords of the enemy to kill Uriah. Now, therefore, and what, remember this phrase. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. That's repeated twice. You have taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Under the sun meaning everything on the earth that the sun shines on is going to have the opportunity to know about this, David. That speaks prophetically of you and me this morning, all these hundreds, thousands of years later, being able to read it in vivid detail. You tried to cover it. You did it secretly, but I'm going to tell the world what you did. Mm. The Lord said, to, then David said to Nathan, to Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin and you shall not die. However, because by this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, to mock, to, to say, well, they're supposedly a man of God. They're supposedly somebody who is, who is the king of Israel, supposedly God's chosen people. Look what he's done. Because you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. That was the short-term consequence, that the baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with, would die. And it happened. It happened that way. You see it in verse 24 and, and others, and, and other sections. 
But the thing that's interesting and is very, very disturbing in a sense is that Nathan told David about some things that would be a part of what he was going to have to live with the rest of his life. He would say to David, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven of your sin. But there are consequences. There is the law of the harvest that will come in. It doesn't, we plant a seed and it never comes up the next morning. The law of the harvest means time passes before the fruit, the harvest begins to come in. It always comes in later and it always comes back more than what was put in the ground. The law of the harvest. But thank God there is one who can override the law of the harvest. You can't override the law of the harvest. I can't override the law of the harvest. But that's what mercy, that's what the word mercy means. The ability on God's part to alleviate the consequences of our sin. He, he does it as he sees fit. He does it when he sees fit. He does it with what he sees fit. But he has the power to show mercy to the guilty sinner. When we read David's life, and there, there needs to be deep conviction, the, the, the awareness that if David, a man after God's own heart, who had written so many of the Psalms and would write yet again many of the Psalms, if he can fall, if, if, if he can fail miserably, then who are you and I to think that we'll never struggle, that, that, that we could never fall? But the positive, the great joy is that the Lord met David at the place of his failure, didn't throw him away didn't cancel the promises that he had made with David. He saw to it that there were, there were consequences that were enough, that were present enough, strong enough to keep David from that point on, on course with God. He wasn't free dancing. He was following hard after the Lord would say, not, not that that was a mean thing or drudgery. He, he just, the other stuff that he had chased in this season of his life, no longer owned his heart. He was set free from some of those things that had caused him to suffer such great trouble and caused trouble in so many other lives. And his heart was singularly now focused upon the Lord, and it never should have left, but it did for a while, just like that can happen with you and me. We sit in here with our Bibles all marked up, and, and we clean up, smell right, and we look like we've just always been in church. That isn't the truth with this crowd, I know. But when we have strayed away and the Lord has brought us back, the joy of our salvation being restored, creating, having been created by His fresh work of His Spirit in our lives, a clean heart within us. It's an amazing thing and a powerful thing and a wonderful thing. I want you to turn to, to uh, the book of Psalms, just, 
just for a moment and find Psalm number 51 because it was written, it was written at the time that Nathan came in to confront David with what he had done. Now, I want to talk to you. This is where we start honing in on where do you find hope in a storm, and especially a storm that you caused. It didn't just happen to you without any reason, but it may have happened because you were the prime mover, that, that some of what's going on is a response to what you did. We've all been there to some degree. Some may be more pronounced than others, but there's truth for us here. How, how, how do you find this hope in a storm? Look, look, at, look at what David writes. Now he's, he, he's done what he's done. He took another man's wife and he murdered the man. And he had to live with it. But he couldn't get away with it because there was something of the Spirit of God, which is hope. Folks, listen, the conviction of sin, a guilty conscience, is a marker of hope for you and for me. The fact that God even cares enough to trouble our souls is a good thing. It means that we still matter to Him. The conviction of sin is, is, a, is a very, very positive thing because it means God hadn't given up on me, that he still has a plan for my life. This is a temporary situation. If I cause it and allow it to be permanent, then that's my choice. But the Lord shows it to me so I can be rid of it. I can confess it and go on. So David writes this, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We talked about that last week. David is saying here that what I did, who I did it to, and the hurt that has caused, been caused on a broader scale, my sin is ever before me. Now, folks, here, here's, here's a step in the direction of hope in a storm that you may have brought up on yourself. It's when you quit blaming people. Who stuck a 357 to your head and said, you better do that or I'm going to kill you? That may have happened in some very, very rare situations. But most of the time, it comes down to choices that we make. Now, we may have been entering a dark night of the soul. There may have been precipitating circumstances. But when it, when it comes down to it, you chose to do that. I chose to do that. The way out, the first step out is to own responsibility for what I did that was wrong in the sight of God. To quit blaming it on the ex or quit blaming it on daddy or quit blaming it on this thing or that thing. that All of those may have a piece of the puzzle in the sense of influencing or bending you in a direction. But when it, when it came down to it, you did it. The, the, the way out, the way out is to own it. David just keeps saying it. It was my sin. 
It was my, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't that Micah rejected me. It, it wasn't that I just got too tired of the wars. It was my sin. There's hope. There's hope there because when we start saying that and we realize that as we, as we say that, the Lord doesn't just strike us down with a bolt of lightning and our lives are over with, but that we sense that he's listening. My sin is ever before me. And then he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The sin is against you, Lord. Now, folks, listen. If we refuse to call it that, if, we, if, we, if we're still saying it was just an affair, instead of calling it adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's one of the big tens. Instead, well, I just, you know, it was just this. It was just that. There's no hope coming if that's where, you're, where you choose to live. If you're excusing it and blaming it, understand God doesn't forgive excuses, and he doesn't accept blame being placed somewhere else. I know somebody said, well, this doesn't sound very hopeful to me. I'm telling you, brother or sister, it is is hope. It is hope. How has it worked for you in this place of hope to live in the place of continually blaming your daddy or continually blaming somebody else or some other circumstance? That, that's something that's something that was an influence, but you chose, you chose. David had to live with this long enough to realize my sin, my sin against Bathsheba and my sin against her husband was a sin, it was a sin against you. The, the word confess, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. Here's the key. The word confess means literally to say with, to say with God what God says about our sins. Not blaming it, not calling it something else, just admitting and saying with God, this is what I did. This is what is wrong in your sight. I agree with you, Lord. I'm not trying to convince you that I was justified. I'm not trying to, trying to defend myself anymore. Guilty right here. I say with you, on the outside, that sounds like that's defeat. That's negative. That's, that's beating the person down. It's the way out. It's the way out. It's the way into life, into the future and the life of the Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins. And look, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means the stain. That means the effect in the atmosphere. That means the residue of the sin. Even that he'll take away. So that's why you find folks that, that that drops 18 inches and they may have fallen off into the war, into a, into a 
crevasse and lived there for a long time. And then, then they begin to see this and, and they call it what God calls it. And they begin to cast themselves on the mercy of the Lord. And they begin to trust in the blood of Jesus. And they come up out of that canyon, up out of that black hole, lighter, brighter, freer, full of joy. You'd think, who they, they never could have lived that way. Oh, yes, they did. But the way out, the way out was saying with God what God said about what they had been doing and then just determining that I'm going to cast myself upon the mercy of God. I'm not going to try to stack up all these reasons in my defensiveness, in my shallow, phony, plastic, defensive posture of here's why, God, it really wasn't all that bad. Or here's why I really didn't mean to do it. Or, or it, is, it really wasn't my fault. You, you hang on to that stuff and hope evaporates. But you come to the place of saying, Lord, what I did was wrong in your sight. And I'm reaping the consequences of what I sowed. I call it sin. I confess it before you. And I'm just throwing myself on your mercy. David says, according to your, according to your loving kindness, according to your gracious heart, I'm asking you to wash away, to blot out my sin. Now that's important that we hold on. We hear that and we, 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 we understand that's where David is coming from because he's going to have to walk through some pretty severe consequences and circumstances yet to come, yet to be manifest in this, in this family storm that he has created. But look on down a little further in, in Psalm 51, 20, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, as David is saying, my only hope that I can ever be changed, the only hope that I can ever become a new man is that will be the power of your Spirit at work inside me. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. But look, skip all the way down to verse 17. And I want you to notice the tenses of two verbs in this one verse. The sacrifices of God, he says, are, present tense, a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not future despise. Sacrifices of God. What the Lord wants from you, from me, as David speaks it here, it, it, it's, not, it, it's not given a bunch of money. It's not in this case all the, the slaughtering of these various sacrificial animals. David, David is saying that the sacrifice that God is looking for is a broken heart. A broken heart. That's not meaning it's always crying. It's always pitting itself. It's always broken in the sense in terms of not being able to live life and function. It means broken in the sense of self-will. 
broken in the sense of pride, broken in the sense of no longer having to defend this false self, broken in the sense of bowing before the Lord who is king, the Lord who is master, bowing before what is right in his sight. It's the picture of the horse that has been broken, the stallion that that, that, that grows up kicking and never has had a saddle, never has had a bridle, but, but the day will come when the trainer will, will, will put the bridle in the mouth and, and, and put a saddle on the back. It's not that the horse dies when it's broken. It's that the horse now can be ridden. The horse now can have its, its strengths maximized. It can now be directed instead of always being in rebellion. The sacrifice, what God wants to see coming from us is a spirit, is a heart that is broken to his leadership, broken to what he wants. That is at the slightest nudging of the knees against the, against the front of the horse or the, or the, or the, the rein against the, or even the lean of the body posture. We just go there because he, I've been broken, not crushed, not defeated, not killed, but I'm under his control. What, what, what went on with David in this season, it seemed to be devastating in many parts, but what was the major work of God in his life was it was bringing David under the loving control and the, the life-giving control of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you're in a storm right now, if you're going through some things that you might even brought upon, have brought upon yourself, God's plan, God's design, God's purpose in it is to bring about a further and deeper and more loving sense of of his control, his leadership in your life. Amen, amen, amen. So in that sense, it's Lord, have your way. When, When we're at the place of being broken, until we get to that place, we're kicking against all of that. We're fighting against it. We're saying, where's God? I don't know where God is. Well, he's right there in the middle. And, and the stuff isn't lifting and things aren't changing because there's a purpose in that. And the purpose in that is to break us of our independence and of our self-will and of our determination. I'm going to do it my way. Well, he wants us to become and to grow in this sense of being fully alive fully alive and surging with with a sense of freedom, but it is not to be absent of the sense of his presence. And that's what this is all about. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Are right now, right now. So David is saying, right now, the sacrifice that the Lord wants from me is a broken spirit. And then he says, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In the days here from here on, From here on, for the future of my life, what you will not despise, what you will not turn away from, what you will not treat literally lightly is a heart and a spirit that is broken towards you. That instead of reverting to whatever it was before that may have caused him to somehow believe that he was bulletproof, or that there was another, another category of rules that went with him because he's such hot stuff as a king. He's realizing, and he's got it from the top of his head to the toenails in his sandals, that what God wants from me 
is a heart that just wants to follow him. And he will not despise my predicament. He will not turn his back on my situation as long as I maintain that heart. Lord, I am yours. I want what you want. And that the word for contrite means crushed and ground to fine powder. That they're not, they're not two molecules of self-will stacked on top of each other by the time David got, was gotten through with in this deal. You will not despise a broken and a contrite heart. Okay, you got that? Now, let, now let's leave Psalm 51 and let's go back to what happened, what begins to happen shortly after Psalm 51 was written. Look over in verse 13, or chapter 13, 2 Samuel 13. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Now remember, there were multiple wives, multiple mothers of children. Absalom has a sister, and the sister was being attracted to by Amnon. So much so that he lays a trap, has her come into his house, he sends everybody else out, and he rapes her. She, in shame, eventually lets her brother Absalom know. Remember what Nathan had said. The sword shall never depart from your household. You've been forgiven. You won't die. You remain the king. You've been forgiven. But the sword will not depart from your household. From the time that Absalom learned that his sister had been raped by Amnon, he began to lay a plan as to how he would murder the one who touched his sister. The plan, you, you can read the full account of that in chapter 13. He pulls it off. He, he, he has his servants in a particular setting pounce on Amnon and they kill him. As a result of that, Absalom fled the kingdom. He went and lived for a couple of years in a neighboring kingdom. But I want you to look. Look, look at 2 Samuel 13 and verse 38. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. And the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom. But then back in verse 37, it says, David mourned for his son every day. David mourned for his son every day. And don't you think for one New York minute that when that happened, the sister was assaulted and the guilty brother was murdered by another brother, that it didn't rise up in David's heart what Nathan had said. The sword will never depart from your house. But David also had come to be convinced that 
even in that family war and that family tragedy, this was settled that his God would not despise a broken and contrite heart on his part. The Lord, my heart is broken before you. My heart is contrite before you. This has happened. It's a residue of some of what I have sown. But in my heart, I'm casting myself upon your mercy and I'm believing that you will not Throw me aside because my heart is broken towards you. My dear brother and my dear sister, if this, you find yourself in any of this story, the worst place to be this morning is in the place of defending yourself, in the place of bowing up whenever somebody brings up something that happened in the past, something that has gone on before. You're still not in the place of the drop zone of hope if you're still bowing up. Why don't they forgive me? Why don't they get past it? Why don't they leave it alone? I I said in the early service, and I'll repeat it again, because this is how I learned this truth in a a very practical sense. If you want to stay the same, don't ever get married. Somebody just don't even even say amen. Don't poke them. Don't, don't, you know, wave your handkerchief. I had to learn this from from Shirley, an incredibly valuable and powerful and life-changing and freeing. You know, just like every couple, we'll have our spats, sometimes, you know, some higher up on the Richter scale than others, but we'd have them. And I couldn't understand why she could remember stuff that I had done that I had long since forgotten. I felt like she, she had pre-birth memories. She, she could remember stuff about her grandparents' dogs and cats and horses and stuff. And then, and then it's just this vivid detail. And I would, I would, be, I would find myself get, being defensive. I said, why, 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 can't, why won't you let that go? Why can't you forgive me? And here's what she said. And this is a doctor of theology person that she's preaching to. She says, if it was wrong then, it's wrong now. And every time you bow up and you try to defend something that you're trying to tell me you repented of, I got questions all over the map about whether or not you really meant that you were sorry, that you were wrong. I mean, she, she was nice about it, but she was bold enough about it and I, and, and I needed it that way. I didn't need pastel colors of, well, you might think about this and what about this other thing. I needed somebody right in my face say, if it was wrong then, it's wrong now. So every time I bring it up, you need to have the same kind of attitude that you had when you supposedly repented of this. No. There's truth in that. And you know what happened? When I started, you know that, Lord, that's you talking to me. I, I, don't, I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. And, and I'm not sure what to do with it, but it just seems like that's right. So here's what I said. Lord, I want, I want you, every time this comes up, in our, whatever it would be, with Shirley and me, and she brings that thing up, my attitude needs to be a broken and contrite heart. No defense, no offended that she hasn't forgiven. Why can't you forgive me? Why don't you forgive me? Folks, listen, if you're still hollering at people like that 
and you're still thinking they owe you forgiveness even though they're so-called a Christian, think again. God is, it's true that we are to release and we are to forgive, but Isaiah 55 says, it's my ways that are higher than your ways. My ability to pardon, my ability to restore the broken and the runaway and the wicked man is something that is beyond what is the human capacity for anybody to do. You, you, can't, you can't beat somebody up. You've got to forgive me. You gotta, they, they, no, they don't. They don't. They can live with unforgiveness. And you haven't helped your case one bit. By storming at them, you've got to forgive me. You've got to forgive me. What, what happens is when genuine repentance moves into a heart, I'm owning in the sight of God what I did. He forgives me. He sends it away as far as the east is from the west. But where people have been hurt, where I've done some things that have affected the lives the persons of, of ones that I'm supposed to be caring about, and I have bruised them, I have abandoned them, whatever it is, the only posture for conversation about anything related to those preceding events is the place of broken and contrite heart before them. Every time you bring it up, I'm going to ask you to forgive me. You bring it up a thousand times between now and noon, my answer is still going to be the same. I was wrong. I hurt you. I never should have done it. Will you please forgive me? Not, you better forgive me. You better forgive me. That worsens the case. But I'm going to tell you, when, I, when, when we started that and implementing that, and she, something would come up, and I'd get kind of off on something, and, and it would remind her of this hard-headed loud mouth preacher husband that she's got, and something would, would come and she'd bring it back up. I felt the Lord just piercing my soul with the truth. You get low instead of getting high. You bow instead of being proud. And you let her bring it up and bring it up and bring it up and bring it up and bring it up. And every time she brings it up, you respond the same way. I was wrong, and I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me. You know what happened? She quit bringing it up. Huh? Not the smartest, sharpest Crayola in the box. But if you want to end it, step into the, there's hope there. Hope is in the place of truth. Hope is not in the place of deception. Hope is in the place of surrender. Hope is in the place of casting yourself helplessly upon the mercy of God, both for the present and for the future. And that's what David did. Amen. Now, y'all need to, I'm probably going to have to have this tape replayed at some point in the future, and it's probably going to be the immediate future that, that I said what I said today. And I'll need to say it again. Will you please forgive me? David, David grieved over, over Absalom's loss, but then here, here, is, this, here is this statement. Look, look back again at chapter 13. When 
David had, Absalom had been estranged from the, from the country because of what he had done and they began to work some kind of process whereby Absalom could be restored and have a place to live again in Jerusalem. I want you to look at this one line out of, a couple of lines, out of verse 15, 2 Samuel 13, verse 15. No, that's not right. It's not right. It's chapter 14. Chapter 14 and verse 14. A woman who had been called in to consultation with regard of how to bring Absalom back makes this statement in verse 14, 2 Samuel 14. This is one worth underlining. She says, yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one may not be cast out from him. God does not take away life, but he plans ways so that the banished one may not be cast out from him. This was a banished son, the king following Regimen protocol, banish the son. But she says God's heart is to come up with plans so that the one who has been banished can be restored. Isn't that something? Just because the law has been meted out doesn't mean that that's how the Lord wants it to stay. And so as a result, Absalom was brought back in. Look at verse 25 of the same chapter. Now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom or so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. That's a head of hair. Now, I don't know what a shekel's worth in in modern um, weights and measures, but he was known for his long, thick hair. Skip over to chapter 15, verse 1. It came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the city gate. And it happened that when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. More absolutely would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, that every man who has any suit or cause would come to me, and I would give him justice. Verse 6, and in this manner Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. He intercepted those who were going to the king. And then it says, so Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He comes up with a plan. He had been working beneath the surface to send out spies and to recruit um, hidden loyalties. And then at the 
given point in time, he would send a signal and, and the armies would, would come to him and he would be proclaimed the king and the leader. Verse 10, Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say Absalom is king in Hebron. It says in the conspiracy, verse end of verse 12, the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. Then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now keep in mind, this Absalom was the fair-haired boy. This Absalom was the one whom David grieved over because he could not have him close at hand. It, it, was, it was the Absalom that was the apple of his eye in some senses of the word. And now that very young man, that very one, has turned on him in treasonous fashion, in traitorous fashion. But folks, listen. What had David done to Uriah? What, 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 what was the door that was opened to the family line through David's choices that now all these years later, Uriah's long been in the grave. Bathsheba's older in years. Solomon, who would eventually take David's place, is already, is already born. But here is, here is all these years later, the sword still not departing from David's household. I, I, but that in mind, but also hold in mind the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. Hope in the middle of the storm. He's having to flee. He's having to leave the palace. He's gathering up whoever would go with him, and they're leaving. You look at verse 23 of chapter 15. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, and all the people passed over, left Jerusalem. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. He's fleeing. David is fleeing for his life. Now watch this. Now behold, Zadok, the priest, also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. And the king said to Zadok, Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. They brought out the Ark of the Covenant, which was supposed, and it was. It was the place where the, Moses had been told, this is where the presence of the Lord will dwell on this earth, between the wings of the cherubim, the mercy seat, all of it, the, the, most, the most powerful um, um, piece of furniture, if you will, anywhere to be found in Israel because that was where God's presence would be found. Here come the priests bringing the Ark of the Covenant out of the city to go with David. That was a sense of where their loyalty would lie and where they believed the Lord's heart would be. But David says, you take the ark back to the city. And here's where I stand. 
if the Lord chooses to have mercy on me, that he'll bring me back. But I want him to do whatever is right in his sight. Okay? Whatever is right in his sight. Is that your heart? Is that my heart? Lord, whatever is right in your sight. Casting himself upon the mercy of the Lord. And I'll give you verse 30. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. A broken heart, oh God, you will not despise. A broken and a contrite heart. You will not despise. When we see David responding in this way, he is responding in a way that was different than the way he would have responded before his dark night of the soul. It would have been rally the troops. Whatever we have to do to take Absalom down, we'll take it down. But here there is the sense I'm guilty. It was wrong what I did. I'm crying out for the mercy of the Lord to be upon me. But I will not defend myself in this sense. I will not rise up and say Absalom has no case. I cast myself in the mercy of the Lord. Eventually, eventually Absalom was killed. And eventually David was restored to the throne. But even as he was fleeing the city, he wrote these words. During the season of fleeing from absence, this is Psalm number three. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. There's no sense in David praying. David's just getting what he deserves. There's no deliverance for him in God. But thou, O Lord, look at verse 3. Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. My glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with, with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept, and I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessing be upon thy people. Folks, somewhere along the line... It dropped 18 inches that the Lord had forgiven him, that the Lord's heart was to have mercy upon him. Somewhere along the line, David became convinced that he had been restored to right standing with God. And he understood the way of the Lord is to bless the righteous, 
to bless the ones in right standing with the Lord. Though he had sinned grievously, though he had hurt unnumberable people, numbers of people, he still had that sense working in his heart somehow that God would not despise a broken heart, that a broken and contrite heart, the Lord would sense that he is being honored in that place and he would be brought back into right standing. And when you're in right standing with God, you can expect him to bless you. You can expect him to protect you. You can expect him to take your side. It doesn't mean that all the wars are over and all the enemies have been immediately defeated, but it means that down in your soul, you know you're not an orphan. You know you've not been abandoned. Though the Lord would have every right to turn his back upon you, you have cast yourself upon the mercy of God. And as a result of that, your heart has been broken to obey him, willing to follow him, and you have the sense of saying, the sense of expecting. His favor is upon me. That he surrounds me like a shield. He's the one who's lifting up my head. All the folks who said there's no help for David in God didn't know what David knew. They'd just been reading the press release, but they didn't understand what the Lord had spoken to David's heart. David confessed what he had done. He agreed with the Lord with what he had done. For us today, our role is to confess our sins, to put our trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us and know that the Lord has promised and he has said that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once that place a fellowship with him, relationship with him is restored, we move back into a place of being able to anticipate the protection of the Lord, the covering of the Lord, the favor of the Lord, the goodness of God in the land of the living. It's a work of the Spirit inside our hearts. So we can, we can have been guilty of grievous things. But when the Lord works that broken spirit, that broken heart, and our faith is trusting in his mercy, and he is able to do again with us what he chooses to do. The promises of David were not negated. The sin that he committed were not so great that it would forfeit the line through which Jesus the Christ would come. He was still called a man after God's own heart. After this stuff happened, Don't give up on the mercy of God. Don't don't lose heart that the magnitude of what you have done or what people have said about what you have done is enough to negate the gift and calling of God upon your life. It isn't. It isn't. It isn't. Hope. Hope in the storm. What that's meaning is the storm would seem to terrify the storm would seem to cause there to be confusion and disillusionment and hopelessness. But what happens when all of a sudden that storm is still howling, the people are still bow- trying to shoot arrows at you, but hope rises up in your heart as it did with David. That's a supernatural manifestation of the power of the God of hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound, overflow in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. 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 Lord, 
we thank you and we praise you that your ways are higher than our ways, that we can't figure you out specifically in the ways of your mercy, in the ways of your pardon, in the ways of your restoration. We cast ourselves upon that hope, Lord, that you are the God of mercy. You're the God of restoration. You're the God of healing. You're the God of favor. You're the God of plenty. You're the God of power. You're the God of joy. You're the God of life. And you are our Father. And we've received you into our lives as the King of our hearts. Have your way with us, Lord. Have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Say his name with me one more time. The name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. I don't know who this was for today. But there was somebody who desperately needed to hear these truths from the life of David. It's no accident that whoever you are have tuned in, you're listening, whether it's live streaming or whether it's here in this room, but there was a word from the Lord for you in what we've talked about today. Don't give up. Don't give up on the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus because of what Christ Jesus has done. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. I want to invite those of you who need prayer, who just need some encouragement. You need somebody to put an arm around you and say, I'm praying for you. If, you if that's not happening on your pew, head this way. Our prayer partners would just love to spend some time with you. It all begins. If it all begins in the relationship with Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter if you've given a million dollars to the church. It doesn't matter if you've been dunked 40 times in the Jordan River or you've been, everybody in your family has been a Baptist or a Catholic forever. It's you. It's you and Jesus. And he's the lover of your soul. And all he wants is for there to be a crack in the door of your heart saying, Lord, save me. Lord, come into my heart. And he will respond to that open door. If you've never done that, then let us pray with you and encourage you. Come walk down these aisles and, and, and let us just spend some time with you, explain to you how that works. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be rescued. That's what he says, and we believe that. Amen. Prayer partners, you all in place? Everybody here? Okay. Now, will you just do as you were led to do? Come this way for prayer hug somebody's neck, just sit right back down and just spend some more soaking in what we've been talking about this morning if you need to. Or go, go, go beat the folks that you know are going to try to get to that Mexican food place that you're going to go eat. Just get, get after it and go there as quick as you can. And be. God bless you. We love you. Thank you for being a part of Alamo City this morning. Streaming family, we bless you and love you and look forward to seeing you one day here in this place or some other way. Look, we look forward to it, but God bless you.